Should we get into this morning? We're in Nehemiah chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it, it'll come up on the screen uh, in a moment. As this is our week of prayer and fasting, we thought I'd preach for a little bit shorter, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see. And, um, and at the end of it, we'll spend a bit more time praying. Um, we're going to get into smaller groups and pray. If you're a visitor, maybe it'd be an opportunity just to talk to the people around you and get to know them a bit. Um, yeah. Grand. So we've been looking at Nehemiah. The rebuilding effort has been going on. The walls and gates in Jerusalem have been broken down. There's ruin and destruction. And Nehemiah has gathered the people and energized them for the rebuilding effort to restore the walls in Jerusalem. But the rebuilding effort has come at a cost. And as we're going to see, it's taking its toll on some of the poorest in community because it's changed some of the the dynamics and circumstances of life for them. And so uh, we're in chapter 5. And we read about um, how the situation develops, um, starting in verse 1, right to the end. It says this, Now there arose a great outcry of the people, the poorest in the community, and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, the wealthier in the community. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many. I need to remember to click this, sorry. Uh, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were those who also said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards, their livelihoods, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Sorry, bear with me. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Um, They were paying off their debts using um, indentured labor. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. It's kind of the start of a court case. I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. I.e., we've escaped slavery from other nations and now we seem to be enslaving each other. How ridiculous. Um, They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Are they going to mock us for our treatment of one another? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards their livelihoods, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been extracting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We'll do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And then Nehemiah gives this kind of footnote on his integrity from there on and how he had 
uh, treated people. He says, Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of our tax Xerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor That's, that was provided by the taxes from the people. They paid the governor money um, in order that he could and his servants eat. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took for them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, i.e. when his servants, their servants went out and got the money, they'd take even more money from the people and say, you know, pay us a tax for coming to collect your taxes, and it made it even worse. Um, but I did not do so because of the fear of, the, of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews, and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So Nehemiah was like receiving diplomatic envoys and visitors and feeding them as well. Now what was prepared at my expense um, for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this... I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Sorry, I didn't change it. My bad. I almost got there, got through the whole thing, switching the right time. Sorry. I don't know if you've ever played Monopoly. Anybody in your families play Monopoly? Yeah, you've got a bully in your family who just dominates the board and destroys and ruins the game for everyone. Um, I used to quite like playing Monopoly uh, when I was a kid. But there is a moment in Monopoly that's just utterly devastating and just makes you like regret ever starting the game at all, isn't there? That Monopoly moment where you go from kind of like surviving in the game, where you don't have much money, but you can like, if you land on somebody's property, you can basically pay them just about. But there's that moment in Monopoly where you can no longer survive in the game with the money you've got in the bank. And what do you have to do if you don't have bank, money in the bank? You've got to give them, you've got to mortgage your properties, haven't you? Your livelihood, the thing that's keeping money flowing into the bank, the properties you own, the houses and the hotels you have, you now have to like give to the person who's charging you. And now you've got, it's like a double whammy, isn't it? Not only have you had to give them like your properties and hotels and houses because you owe them a debt, you're now losing your livelihood as well. And you get that moment where you're like, just in, it's just desperation, isn't it? You just know that the rest of the game is going to be miserable for you because you've got no way of playing it anymore. They've ripped your livelihood from you. And now they'll do something like, they'll try and show like care and compassion and be like, I'll let you off paying this debt. And you think, great, I've still got no way of earning any money, so it doesn't really help. All you're doing is like extending the problem. Now I don't have a livelihood, but you'll let me off. So I'm kind of like in this situation forever where I can't pay any money and I don't have a livelihood. Thanks for letting me off. Um, And we have this kind of like monopoly moment in the passage where there's no return. There's no money in the bank to survive. You have to start mortgaging your assets and property to stay in the game, selling off the livelihood in order to pay debts to wealthier players in the game and simply survive. It's okay for a game, isn't it? It's okay for a game, but it's not okay when it happens in life. It's okay for a game of Monopoly, but it's not all right when it comes to other people and their lives. 
And what the passage is saying is certainly not okay for it to happen in the family of God. See, the rebuilding work had meant that some of the poorest people in the Jewish community, the rural farmers, had had to neglect their farming work in order to start rebuilding the wall. But it meant they were kind of, they couldn't be out in the fields because they were defenseless, but they needed to build the wall to build a defense. They were suffering as a result of it. They were caught between being defenseless on the farm and continuing to build the walls. And they weren't able to farm as normal, so they hadn't produced grain, so they couldn't eat. And therefore, they were needing to sell their livelihoods and property in order to eat. But then they had no way of gaining money, and they were having to borrow money in order to pay their debts, and giving their children into essentially indentured labor, so their children worked in order to pay off the debts, and their children worked for the people they were in debt to. As is often the case in these situations, the poorest in the community were struggling to adapt to changing circumstances, and the changes were hitting them the hardest. Income was down, price of life was going up, and they still needed to pay taxes to the Persian king. They had no way forward. They're in that monopoly moment. Desperation has hit. They're totally stuck. They don't know what to do. They couldn't make life work. They were in utter ruin. And so there was this outcry. The result is they'd mortgaged their properties and their livelihoods, their children indentured labor, their lending lending money they have no hope of repaying. Perhaps without realizing it, the rich Jewish brothers were getting richer while the poor Jewish brothers were getting poorer at their expense. Uh, So the divide was increasing. The rich were getting richer at the expense of the poor by taking land and charging interest on loans. But exploitation isn't something that's just of the past. We still have this kind of exploitation going on in modern-day society, don't we? We have labor exploitation. Somebody's desperate for work. They don't have enough money to live and pay the bills and feed the families. But they get paid little. They're in atrocious working conditions. No hope of development, progress, or escape from their poverty. And the extreme of this is slavery, isn't it? Forcing somebody to work without payment because they're stuck in the situation. Making somebody work without choice. We've got financial exploitation. When someone who doesn't have enough money to live borrows money from somebody else, they charge them interest. And we see this kind of going on internationally between nations, don't we? Loaning money to nations that can't ever really afford to pay it back, charging them interest, which increases their debt, and they've got no way of getting out of it. Child exploitation. Exploiting the most defenseless and vulnerable in society who have no resources and uh, no defense who are unable to protect themselves. The extreme of this kind of exploitation is when we kill um, unborn babies in the womb, totally defenseless and unable to protect themselves, maybe for social gain or for financial gain. 200,000 in the UK last year were killed. Environmental exploitation. Exploiting the environment, often taking people's livelihoods with it. So, for example, illegal logging. Deforestation is not only wrecking um, the ecosystem that we depend on, it's also at the same time taking away people's livelihoods who depend on the forest in order to um, uh, live. There's sexual exploitation. 
This is where um, we mine the body and soul of another person without making long-term commitment to them that God intended for a man and a woman. The extremes of this being when somebody is forced to have sex with somebody else. Or sex trafficking, where we use people's bodies for our own pleasure and gain. Or there's religious exploitation. Any cult or religion that says, if you do X, then you can get Y in order to be saved. And it exploits people's energy. It exploits their money, their emotion, without any promise or ability to deliver on it. And as we'll see later on, the gospel um, is very different. A relational exploitation, treating people like X in order to get, oh, sorry, in order to get Y from them. There's many more. Addiction, um, gender exploitation, racial exploitation, technological exploitation. Taking advantage, basically, of other people's weaknesses, their vulnerabilities, their needs, in order to gain from them for ourselves. So what happens in the passage? Well, the first thing is that Nehemiah hears the outcry it seems like from the passage that basically the rich don't really understand what's going on. They don't quite know the impact it's having on their poorer brothers. They're a bit like, you need money from me. I'm happy to lend you it. I'm doing a good thing. I've lent you the money, but obviously it's appropriate for me to charge interest. So they're charging interest to the poorer folk in the community, unaware of the crippling nature of what that's doing to them and their lives. Um, They seem kind of ignorant of the situation, the impact of their actions. Nobody seems to notice, not even Nehemiah. But there's something, isn't there, about wealth and comfort. There's probably a bit of a warning to us in the West. That wealth and comfort can make us a bit ignorant and oblivious to the effects that that has on other people. It can even have it within a society. If you live in reasonable wealth and comfort a bit oblivious to what it's like for somebody in our nation who doesn't have everything that they need. Kind of assuming kind of everyone has a reasonably similar situation or in the West, everyone gets a reasonably good education, everyone seems to be doing okay. Oblivious to the plight and the difficulty that people are experiencing. But Nehemiah, verse 1, hears their outcry and he's very angry. He hears their desperation, their pain, And the scales are lifted from his eyes and he sees for the first time the desperation of the situation. And it cuts him to the heart. Fortunately, throughout history, there's been moments, haven't there, where people have heard the outcry of the poor and needy and responded and brought justice to society. You think of people like William Wilberforce, who helped abolish slavery, Martin Luther King, who brought equality between blacks and whites in America. You think of uh, Cicely Saunders, who founded the hospice movement, gave dignity to people in death. You think of Emmeline Pankhurst, who brought um, emancipation for women. These people throughout history who've heard the outcry, they've listened to the cries of injustice that people are experiencing and have responded to empower others. This is what's going on here. Nehemiah is very angry. It's an appropriate emotion. When you hear that somebody is in desperation and in need and vulnerable and can't get out of it, it's an appropriate emotion to feel anger about the situation. 
It's an appropriate emotion to feel anger at the injustice of the situation because we're made in the image of God. And God is love, and so he gets angry because the things that he loves, people, are being exploited. So it makes him angry. So Nehemiah's feeling an appropriate angry response because God also hates this exploitation. He hates injustice. He hates it because he's a God of justice. All throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, there's, there's a law given to Moses that tells the people of God how they're to behave, how the kind of ways they're to live to ensure that justice happens in their community. And even though that exists in the Bible, Nehemiah doesn't actually ever say, this is what the law says, therefore you should do this. He kind of alludes to the spirit of the law. Don't treat people like this. This is no way to treat your brother. You're not loving them. You're not giving to them. Look at the desperation of their situation. But the law in the Old Testament did say things that spoke into this. So, for example, Leviticus 25, 35. If your brother becomes poor, can't maintain himself, I feed himself, you shall support him. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. Same line that's in our passage. That your brother may live beside you, i.e. give to one another. Don't just use your brother's poverty in order to gain for yourself. Give out of love. Just give to him. Deuteronomy 24.6 No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. I.e., don't take somebody's livelihood from them. Don't make their situation worse than it already is. Don't lend it back to them at a cost. It won't help them. And later on in the same chapter, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. Give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. He's poor and counts on it. Lest he cry against you to the Lord, you'd be guilty of sin. I treat workers fairly. Don't just pay them the minimum. Pay them well and pay them on time. They're, they're living hand to mouth. You give them the money, they feed themselves. Don't pay them late. They won't be able to eat. And there's a note of warning in that passage that says, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. It says the same in verse 9 in the passage, ought you not to walk in the fear of God, i.e., take God seriously. Take God seriously. He hates injustice. It makes him angry to the core, seeing people be exploited Take him seriously. If you don't, you're playing with fire. And then Nehemiah does this thing in the passage, which may have sounded odd to us, but he just does something symbolically. He like opens up his coat, like empties his pocket, essentially, shakes it out, and all the stuff falls on the floor. And he says, this is what God is going to do to the person who treats people like that and exploits them. He's going to empty them out and shake them out, empty them until they have absolutely nothing and what Nehemiah is saying is he, he's saying he wants them to realise, he wants these wealthy Jewish brothers to realise the gravity of the situation. Look at what you're doing to these people. God hates injustice. This is what he will do to the person who exploits others in this way. So that's the first thing. We hear the outcries. Second thing is we take counsel with ourselves. Verse 7, Nehemiah's reaction in the passage is, is one that we should take note of. I don't know about you, but when you get angry, it's really easy just to like lash out, isn't it? To 
to react really angrily and like rashly and harshly and try and execute justice yourselves. But this isn't what Nehemiah does. He doesn't respond immediately to his feelings of anger, even though they're appropriate. He takes counsel with himself. What does he do? He takes time to think about it. He thinks about how he feels. Because when you're angry, if you're anything like me, sometimes you're angry for the wrong reasons. You know? Like all pent up and frustrated and ready to burst. But I need to like take time and think, you know, like I get things wrong. (laughs) Sometimes I don't have things in perspective. Maybe I've misheard stuff. He takes time to think about how he feels, how he felt, what he was hearing, and how to respond appropriately. He doesn't rush into exact justice, bring retribution and accuse. And there's a couple of reasons why we shouldn't do that. The first is because we should leave punishment to the appropriate authorities. God appointed authorities who are there to bring justice in society. And ultimately, to leave punishment to God. We're not the ones to bring justice. God is the one who will bring justice. Paul says in Acts, Um, He's talking to a a group of Greeks. He says, uh, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's reigning in heaven. He's going to come back one day and he's going to bring justice on the earth. And so don't try and take justice out yourselves. Be totally inappropriate to Leave that to God-appointed authorities that are in power and leave it to God himself who will send Jesus to bring justice. And the second thing is, it just wouldn't be appropriate for us to bring justice and retribution ourselves. Verse 10, Nehemiah acknowledges his part in the injustice of the situation. He says, I am my brothers. He says, I've been lending money. He acknowledges his guilt in the situation. And we too should recognize our part in the situation in the world. Because the reality is that I personally have received grace upon grace from God. Mercy upon mercy for the way that I have treated other people. That I've treated them horrifically. I've exploited others. I've gained things from other people in an unfair way. How ugly would it be for me to try and exact justice on somebody else when I have done something similar myself and received mercy and grace from God for the way that I am and the way that I have behaved? How ugly would it be for me to try and dish out justice as if I had never done anything wrong myself? So we take counsel with ourselves. The third thing is we act to empower. See, we We don't just execute justice ourselves, but we do have a role to play. Like Nehemiah in this passage, if you look at verses 7 to 11, what he does is he acts to empower others. He explains the injustice of the situation to the uh, richer Jewish brothers. He tells them to abandon charging interest, give them back their property and their livelihoods. And verse 12, he succeeds. The richer Jewish brothers go, yeah, that is a horrific situation. We can't be involved in this. And they agree, they respond by agreeing to love their poorer brothers, they restore their livelihoods to them, they don't require anything of them, but they sacrificially give to their brothers to empower them to get back on their feet, to live for themselves, work for themselves, feed their own families, and be able to contribute to the wall building themselves. 
i.e. to make them those who are able to empower others by just giving to them. Not by like expecting anything back. Self-sacrificially, this costs me as a richer Jewish brother. Here, have your land. Borrow this. Uh, have this money. It's yours. Get back on your feet. They act to empower the others. So if exploitation is taking advantage of somebody else because of their poverty, weakness, vulnerability, or need for themselves, then we need to be the opposite, don't we? What's the opposite? The opposite is doing what they did in the passage, is to self-sacrificially give to empower those in need, to act on the behalf of those who are suffering injustice, to stop it, to empower the impoverished, the needy, the weak, the vulnerable, so that they can gain strength for themselves and become contributors in society again and be those who empower others in return. So in Monopoly, it's not saying, don't worry about paying me that debt. I know you're totally crippled already. Don't worry about paying me that one. But I'm going to leave you in the situation that you're in. As When you play Monopoly, you realise that's not actually much of an act of compassion, is it? It's like, well, I can't really afford to pay you anyway. <laughs> you think, and I'm still stuck in my situation. Thanks. But it's actually empowering the other person to be able to... The equivalent in Monopoly would be, here's my Mayfair and Park Lane and my hotels, all yours. Next roll of the dice, somebody lands on theirs, money in the bank. Empowered to live again in the game of Monopoly. That's the equivalent, isn't it? Empowering the person, just giving self-sacrificially. I may lose the game of Monopoly, but here you go. Have these properties, these hotels and houses. Have a livelihood to get back on your feet again and be able to be part of life, work for yourself and give to others later on down the the game when you become the person who's most powerful in the game. Think about uh, empowering others. See, sometimes we act rightly to provide relief in a situation, basically to stop somebody from dipping below the poverty line and meet an immediate need, which is good to do. But more than that, we want to go beyond that, don't we? We don't just want to relieve somebody from their situation. We want to empower them to get out of it themselves, to grow in strength, to live and work for their own needs and become self-sacrificial givers themselves, i.e. give them a livelihood. The English proverb um, kind of summarizes this, doesn't it? Give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach him to fish, and feed him for a lifetime. I.e., don't just give the person fish, give them the fishing rod so they can sort themselves out for life. And that's what we want to do, isn't it? We want to get alongside people to give them the fishing rod, to pour into them, give them, strengthen them, empower them and equip them in life. I had the privilege of going out to visit Edward and Frida Berea in Kenya a number of years ago because as a church at King's, we'd been giving into a sacco that they organize. A sacco is basically people give money into the sacco and then people in Kenya would borrow money from the sacco to start up a business. Once the business was funded, they would return the money to the sacco without interest. And I went and visited this man called Stephen who had started up a farm business with the money he got from the sacco. He'd built an irrigation system. He bought some land, built an irrigation system and was farming fruitfully. The money that he ain't able to gain from that business, he paid back the loan to the sacco 
He had a business that could feed his family and others in the community in need. Patrick and Grace are doing this at Morning Star, aren't they, with education of young people. They're empowering them so that in the future they might be able to live and work for themselves. And we support them by relieving their immediate needs, uh, facilities, equipment, staff wages. But what we would love to see for them in the future is for Patrick and Grace themselves to be holding a fishing rod and saying they can meet the needs of the work themselves to empower them to meet the needs of the work to grow and to reproduce and to flourish. So we act to empower. And the final thing is that God is the great empowerer, just before we pray. God is the opposite of exploitation, isn't he? He's the great empowerer. He's the one who uses his strength to empower the weak, his wealth to empower the poor, his security to empower the vulnerable, his sufficiency to empower the needy, and his righteousness to empower the guilty. All through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. He was weakened by beatings and torture. He was made poor, stripped naked, without anything, no belongings or even clothing. He was vulnerable to the brutality of Roman soldiers. He was thirsty and in need of a drink. See, God gave his greatest treasure, his son, who gave up his life so that we could live. God is the righteous who became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. God, the all-powerful, became weak so that we could become empowered by the Spirit to do all things. God, the Spirit, became spiritually poor so that we could know the riches of his grace. God, who owns everything, died on a cross with nothing so that we could inherit everything. God is the great empowerer, and we have received from him graciously. He has not loaned things to us with interest. He has graciously graciously given us all things to empower us to live and to work for his glory. Isn't that good news? Romans 5, 6-8, For while we were still weak, vulnerable, in need, impoverished, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, while we were sinful, without hope in life, stuck in that monopoly moment spiritually, God sent Jesus to empower us to live again and to be empowerers of others for his glory. Um, Just thinking in terms of response before we get to pray, we want to be those, maybe there's some of us who've been exploited, or are exploiting, and maybe the scales have lifted from our eyes, we're gaining from others unfairly. Cry out to God, because God will empower you with forgiveness, with his love, He will respond to you with life and healing and help. Cry out to him. He hears your cry. Maybe we need to listen to the outcry of others. We hear other people saying, life's not fair. It's a desperate situation I'm in. We need to be people who hear the outcry of others. 
Third, we need to act. Consider how we can act on behalf of others. How can we empower others to live for themselves as God has empowered us? And the very least we can do is pray, can't we? In any situation, if we don't have, sometimes you just don't have the capacity. You hear the need, you think, God, I can't do anything about it. What can I do? At least we can pray, can't we? Pray for those who are in need. And verse 19, expect a reward. Nehemiah prays this, remember for my good, O my God, all that I've done for this people. We don't earn a reward, we just receive it as a gift. Now and when Jesus returns, uh, Jesus says this in Luke 6.38, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you, you use it, it will be measured back to you.